The narrative of Christ's birth in the Gospel of Luke invites, and we might even say it kind of draws you into an intimate scene of light, an intimate scene of glory, an intimate scene of hope. All around is a kind of looming darkness. Everything else stands in the shadows in mixed tones of gray and black. The shepherds, of course, for an instant, are surrounded by what we would say is the indescribable beauty of heavenly light. We read in Luke chapter 2 and verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and that they were sore afraid or filled with great fear. But as quickly as that light appeared, it dissolved. And they were back in the monotone world of the night. But making their way, as they had been directed to do, to the manger, they came and and then went from that circle of light back out into the world. They went out, we're told, with joy and delight, having basked in the presence of the newborn king, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, But they came into that scene of light and and brightness, but then they went back out uh, into the world. With few exceptions, every nighttime nativity scene draws your eyes to the manger as the light either falls on or it radiates out from the Savior in that cattle uh, bed. It must have been a precious scene, uh, a scene filled with hope and joy, all the hope and joy that's inspired by a newborn birth, and in this case, by the prophecies and the blessings of the Holy Spirit that attended it. We're told that after looking on this scene in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So they are out in the fields. They're covered with this bright light from heaven. Then darkness descends on them again. They make their way to Bethlehem to the manger scene. There, there is light around the Savior, not an artificial light, but, but light created by lamps and so on. And then they go back out into the darkness as, as the light of the day begins. But if we pull back a little from that group around the manger, you find yourself soon back in darkness. Not just the natural darkness of the night, but the benighted darkness of the world. In describing this day, the prophet Isaiah says, and this is in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 2 through 3, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The prophet describes the way of sinful men in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 22. He says there, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, 
the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The whole image is one of intense anguish for leaving the counsel of the true God. They shall be driven to darkness, a darkness that is driven, or that is urged upon itself, that becomes condensed, accumulated, until it becomes terrible and frightful, says Barnes. Now, hopefully, you all know that there really are no good old days. Hopefully you know that. There are no good old days other than the days before the fall. Those are the only good old days. The age when many imagine that life was simpler and more innocent, what some have termed the age of Camelot, has never, ever really existed. Sometimes are perhaps relatively better than others, but the truth is that darkness has covered the earth and gross darkness the people since Adam was turned out of the garden. Any historian worth his or her salt, using an historical reference there, amateur or professional, has to admit that since the fall, there have been idolaters and false religions, corrupt politicians who lie and steal. Have you read the Bible? Right? This isn't anything new, right? Corrupt politicians who abuse their power. Greedy men and women who out of selfishness strip others of their livelihood and their hopes. Immoral men and women. Involved, engaged in all sorts of perversion. There have always been murderers. There have always been beatings. There have always been corrupt religious leaders. There's always been drug abuse. There's always been enslavement, war, hatred, bigotry, diseases, plague, sorrows, droughts, floods, earthquakes, volcanoes. They aren't new. That's been the story of man since the fall. Now, this may be a trying time for you in respect to your lifetime in some way, but let me assure you that there have been worse times and that these times have plagued the earth to one degree or another throughout all time. When you pull back away from the sweet and blessed confines of the manger and you cast your eyes over the rest of the world at that time, you'll see that all these things were a part of those days. The people in power all over the world tended to be corrupt. And one could find every vice imaginable and some that are unimaginable being practiced at that time. The idea of a golden age among men and women is a myth, and it has never really existed since this side of Adam's fall. 
Now, having said all that, you might be scratching your head, not literally, but metaphorically, and saying to yourself this morning, I thought he was going to preach on joy today. This is pretty dark. Maybe you feel like you need a little relief from all the bad news, not a recitation of it and a reminder that it's been common to all ages. And I agree. But this is reality. And while there have been better times for nations and for families and even for individuals, it's important to realize that there has never been a time since the fall that the gospel was anything less than the good news of Jesus Christ. That the gospel was never anything less than the good news of great joy. It's against the nagging backdrop of sin and darkness, beloved, and its consequences that the birth of the Savior in the ancient city of David, the one who is Christ the Lord, is a message filled with joy for all who believe. If you don't have that backdrop, you can never understand the message of joy. This reality is at the heart of that great Christmas hymn we were just singing together a moment ago, Joy to the World. And I have to say, as I was sitting there listening, I think that is the best I've heard this congregation sing Joy to the World in 19 years. You just really were into it, and that, that was great. That hymn is a favorite of Christians because the announcement of the Messiah's birth was, and it is, good news, the best of news. It's the message that the Savior has come to deliver you and me and all who believe from their sins and from darkness and sorrow. It's all part of this fallen world. There has never been an age, beloved, when men and women concerned with sin could look out over the world and say, you know, there's really no need for a savior. Not now. Things are pretty good. We have it all under control. And there's hardly any sin in the world. There's hardly any sin in me. The gross darkness really is kind of gone. And we can find our way to God by ourselves. Never been a time throughout all the ages of man when that's been the case. And that's why in any age, the message of salvation brings joy to the world. That's why it is. That's why it, it remains joy to the world, a joyful message to the world throughout every age, because the problems have always been the same. The need has always been the same. Now, when we turn to this hymn itself, believe it or not, it's a bit of a strange thing. Joy of the World was not written to celebrate Jesus Christ's birth specifically. Its words come from the second half of a poetic version of a psalm that was penned by the Englishman Isaac Watts. And we'll get back to that in, in just a moment. 
We sing it to a tune that is a cobbled together piece of music by a famous German composer who lived in England, George Frederick Handel. Some of you may have heard of him. He composed the tune by the reworking of parts taken from another thing you may have heard of, a very famous oratorio of his, The Messiah. But strangely, this tune that's so familiar to us was refined by an American named George Mason into the hymn tune Antioch and is hardly known or heard in England at all. It's kind of foreign to them. They don't sing Joy to the World to that tune, even though that tune was written by a German who was living in England. So it's strange in that sense. Now, as I mentioned, Watts was not writing a hymn when he set down these words. It was not at Christmas time either. It was, as I said, the second part of a poetic version of the Psalms that appeared in his work, the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament. That's where this first appeared. In Watts' work, the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament, which he wrote in 1719. Handel composed the Messiah in 1741, and the tune version of this piece came along even later. So there's no immediate connection between all these pieces. The psalm that Watts was paraphrasing was the one we read together this morning in our responsive reading, Psalm 98. And I'm going to be quoting from the King James Version because that would have been the familiar English version at the time. The section covered by his poem, and now this hymn, is Psalm 98, beginning with verse 4. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise, and rejoice, and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Let the floods Clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. Now Fish, a Bible commentator, F-Y-S-H, says of this psalm, this divide into three stanzas. The first shows why Jehovah ought to be praised. The second, how Jehovah ought to be praised. And the third, who ought to be praising him. This psalm is an evident prophecy of Christ's coming to the world. And what is here foretold by David is in the Blessed Virgin song, chanted forth as being accomplished. David is the voice and Mary is the echo. If you saw this in the notes that came to you electronically or you have the notes before you this morning, you can see that comparison. 
David in the psalm says, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Mary, echoing that, says, My soul doth magnify the Lord. David says in the psalm, He hath done marvelous things. Mary says in her hymn, He that is mighty hath done great things. David says in the psalm, With his own right hand and holy arm hath he gotten himself the victory. And Mary says in her hymn, he hath showed strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. David says in the psalm, the Lord hath made known his salvation, his righteousness hath he openly showed. Mary says his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. David says he hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. Mary echoes it by saying, he hath holpen or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, when Watts wrote this poetic form of this psalm, he had the whole story of Christ from birth to triumphal return in mind as he sought to rework the psalm in the imitation of the language of the New Testament. He was taking the whole story of Christ from his birth to his return, to his triumphant and great return. Look again at verse 1 of the hymn, or stanza 1. It begins by saying, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. There's a sense, beloved, in which the first line is a response to the psalmist. And though we don't know who it was uh, that wrote this psalm, it echoes themes that are found in the prophecy of Isaiah. And that's not to intimate that Isaiah was its author, but it rather illustrates the consistency of the Holy Spirit from generation to generation. But what the psalmist is doing, or excuse me, what Watts is doing, is really the same thing that Mary did. He is echoing the psalmist. The psalmist cries, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And our hymn says, joy to the world. Make a joyful noise to the the Lord, we'll do it. Joy has come into the world. Every tongue must applaud. And that with the vigor which joy of heart alone can arouse to action says Spurgeon. Now, what is the reason for this joy? Well, Mr. Brillhart dealt with this last week. The reason for the joy is Emmanuel. Joy of the world. The Lord has come. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and all things, has come. And he dwells with us. He is Emmanuel. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is not an enlightened being or a man or some sort of guru. He is the Lord himself in the world. And the call is for surrender because he has come. It's a call for the earth to receive its king. Not to acknowledge the presence of some shaman or guru, but to surrender, to bow, and to swear allegiance to the king of kings. 
You get a fuller picture of this if you, you see the world as God describes it, full of men, women, and children who are in a state of rebellion and who are at enmity with him. If you look at the world as it is indeed marshaled against him, wearing the uniform of the enemy, who holds them in bondage, bearing the enemy's banners and carrying his weapons and doing his bidding. If you look at the world in that way, then you can see that this is a call for all to throw down their weapons, to throw down their banners, all raised up against him, and to strip off the enemy's dress, the rebel's attire, and bow the knee before him, and confess that Jesus Christ is king. That's the idea behind preparing room in your heart for him. This, beloved, is the preparation of the heart for the king to reign, and for there to be no king but Jesus. It's for the surrender of all before him. So here he comes into the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Prepare your room in your heart for him. And you see in the psalm that it calls for heaven and earth and all nature to sing. Not just mankind, but the whole creation, seen and unseen. And it's a picture of the whole creation reacting to the presence of the creator in its midst, in the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking briefly with Joel McMillan on Friday night, nephew and cousin of a number of our children here and, and parents, was doing it on Friday evening, and there was one thing that he wanted to share with me. And I hadn't seen Joel in some time, but there was one thing that made his face light up and filled him with excitement. It was the news that his brother Reed was coming home from his Marine Corps duties for Christmas. And Joel was just excited about that idea. He's coming home, he's gonna be here for Christmas. And it just animated him in every way. There was obvious anticipation and excitement in his demeanor. And that's gonna to turn to real joy when his brother walks in the door. And that, beloved, is this a thousandfold. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. He's in his world, and he's here to king, as king to reign. And that theme is continued in the second verse. You see it there, or the second stanza. I don't want to get confused here because these aren't verses of scripture. These are stanzas from a hymn. I don't want to make sure we make that distinction. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. There's a sense in which we can see the whole creation is designed for the glory of God. There's no question about that. We're, it's, it's there. Everything about it speaks to the glory of God. But that mission of the creation 
is at present strained and burdened and groaning under the weight of sinful human beings who keep deifying it. The creation is supposed to declare the creator. The scripture talks about that. But sinful human beings look at that declaration of the creator and instead of acknowledging him, they deify the creation itself. It is the sin of man that has even brought the whole creation under a curse so that it can't speak with full-throated clarity about the glory of God because the eyes of men and women cannot see it and their ears cannot hear it. So when they look at that which bears witness to the, to the glory and the power and the attributes of God, instead they look at a mountain like the one on the horizon out there and they say, oh, that must be God. Instead of looking at who created it and glorifying him, they bow before the mountain and call it something spiritual and something sacred and make a God out of it or pieces of stone, or pieces of gold, or animals crawling across the earth, whatever it is. But when the king came into this world, and while he was here, the creation was liberated, we might say, to a certain extent. So much that you find evidence like this in the Word. This is Matthew chapter 8 beginning with verse 26, the second half of verse 26. Then he, that is Jesus, rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? In that moment, the wind and the sea were able to bear testimony to the Creator. The wind isn't a God. The sea isn't a god. The sea isn't hiding some god underneath named Poseidon who, who makes things happen in, in the waters of the world. This one, this king, this savior, Jesus Christ, is the one who has the command over his creation. And in that moment, the creation was able to bear witness to the creator, clearly and fully, so much so that the eyes and minds and hearts of the disciples weren't directed to the winds and the waves and saying, what kind of sacrifice do we have to make to the waves to make them stop flooding us? They turned to Jesus and said, who is this? Who is this? It is the creator of the world. That's who it is. And that's why he has that authority and power. In Luke chapter 19, in verses 37 through 40, as he was drawing near Jesus, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all, that, all his mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what did he answer? I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
He's the king over all. And so that's why the psalmist and our hymn, Joy of the World, says, Joy of the world, the Savior reigns. Let everything praise him. Let everything give glory to him. Let everything honor him. Let everything declare him to be king and Savior. It's no new thing that the Lord reigns, but it's an enhancement of reality when the Lord reigns as Savior. When the king sweeps before him all and brings his enemies and ours to their knees. Back in Psalm 98, verse 5 says, Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp, and with the voice of a psalm, with trumpets and a sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. And then verse 9 says, Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. The use of all these instruments seems to suggest that we're to praise God with all that we are and all that we have. Let it all be employed in the praise and honor of your God and King. The psalmist here expresses the vehement and ardent affection which the faithful ought to have in praising God when he enjoins musical instruments to be employed for this, pur- for his, for this purpose. He would have nothing omitted by believers which tends to animate the minds and feelings of men in singing praises to God, says Calvin. And then look at verse 3, or uh, stanza 3, and with it we'll close today. But listen to the words carefully, because they're important. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, as far as the curse is found. One music critic critic writing about this verse made the observation that the echoing refrain there seemed to him a little frivolous given the seriousness of the theme. As far as the curse is found, just thought, I'm not sure that those words meet or match that the character of that part of the tune. And I understand why he may, might feel that way, but I disagree with him, and I'll explain why in just a minute. The birth of Christ announced the end, beloved, of, unhampered, of the unhampered growth of sin and sorrow. Sin not only spreads across the face of the earth, but it spreads in the population and in the hearts and souls of lost men and women. Sin entered in and has been passed down from generation to generation. It infected Noah, and it infected Noah's children and their children. And there was and there is no human force or resource, solution or inoculation to stop that creeping spread. My grandfather passed his inherited original sinfulness to my father, and my father passed it on to me, and I have passed it on to my children, 
and they have passed it on to my grandchildren. The evidence of the infection is the undeniable sinfulness of each one of us. And paraphrasing Paul, we might weepingly cry out at that truth saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me and those I bear from this terrible, ruinous love of sin? How can it end? Where will it end? Because it keeps being passed on from generation to generation. And here is the answer. Joy to the world. The King, the Savior, has come and he reigns. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Beloved, by his reign of grace in the heart, sin is arrested in its creeping growth. The covenant promise of God working in the hearts and lives of covenant children bring it up short. My grandfather and father passed sin and death down to be. But my Savior brought them and me to our knees, broke our hearts, and gave to us the grace to surrender to him and arrested that process of corruption in us. And it's because he came that that hope exists, that that reality is a part of our lives. And that, beloved, is why I think the echo of that refrain, refrain, as far as the curse is found, is not frivolous, but most appropriate. Because the good news of the Savior's coming and reign will continue to be the good news to the end and as far and as long as the curse is found. As long and as far as it is found, the gospel will be its effectual remedy. As far as it goes, as long as it lasts, the gospel will be its remedy. When the curse of sinfulness is still bringing sorrow into the lives of men and women, even in the days of your children's children's children, the hope provided by the Savior's promise that it is the gospel for them as well as for you will follow them right down to the end of the age. As far as the curse goes. And his redeeming work and his glorious reign undoes all that sin has ruined for all who are his by faith. And that's the other part of it. It's not just as far as it extends in relationship to mankind, but as far as it also extends in relationship to your life. He has changed it all. We often quote it in different circumstances, but it's very, very appropriate here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, joy to the world. Joy to the world. Because this is so. It's so by his mercy and grace and by his eternal reign. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness, the wonders of his love. In Isaiah 2, beginning in verse 12, we read this. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Joy to the world. He reigns. He rules. His day is coming. And he's given us a part in it by his grace towards us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts have been prepared to make room. We've surrendered before him. And now we praise him as the one true and living God. Let's pray. Father, it is a message of joy, everlasting joy, that the Lord has come, that the Savior has come, that men have, and women and children have been redeemed by grace. And Father, we pray that we would join in the call here for the whole creation to glorify you as it was meant to do, and that our voices would join it, giving glory to you, giving glory to you as the God who made us, as the one who preserves us day by day, and the one who has so wonderfully, so marvelously, so graciously, so lovingly saved us. And now we pray to you, Lord, that our King may come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, and fill out the joy that belongs to all who are yours. These things we pray for, these things we give thanks for. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.